consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Halloween, Galit. Happy Halloween! Although, when they're listening to this, it is November 1st. So, <laughs> happy Halloween. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving! <laughs> November. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, fall semester, they make you wait for the break. So, well, I, I teach at a school without fall break. Oh, no. So you have to go all the way till Thanksgiving break. And I'm just, it's just like. I don't know how you do that. Uh, it, with a lot of complaining. We have taken <laughs> in my, <laughs> my class, right? And there was one day that they were just like, like you could tell the energy in the class was just down. And I said, okay, we're going to take three minutes to complain. Who's who's got a complaint? And one of them would raise their hand and they'd be like, I have a paper due in microbiology. And then we'd go, we validate you. Life is hard and you're tired. And then the other one would be like, I have to play at con and I don't feel like my reads are great. We validate you. Your reads are could be better or whatever. <laughs> and we just went through and there have been a couple of times that they've been like can we take three minutes to complain and so <laughs> such a cute idea <laughs> just a little validation uh like it sounds own. like the made-up Seinfeld uh holiday festivus how so well isn't festivus like anti-christmas Everyone who knows Seinfeld is just screaming oh, so at me it's right anti-Thanksgiving, now. Anti-Thanksgiving, <laughs> anti-grateful complain about your life. Yeah, I guess in that way. Anti-grateful. <laughs> well, the other thing I do in that class is if one of their cell phones go off, I say, you know, please keep them on silent, don't disturb the class. And so if one of them go off, the whole class, I've trained them to do the Game of Thrones shame. Shame, and they turn and chant shame the student who cell phone it off. That's just so funny. These and more classroom management tips brought to you by Double Read. <laughs> That's amazing. 
crying a little bit. Well, can I air a complaint? Yes. Will you validate it? We'll see. <laughs> um, I came to the realization that I have a yearly read rut in the month of October. Ugh. Every October, it's like I forgot everything I know about read making. And I cannot make a single read. I'm starting to come out of it, but it is October 31st. (laughs) Is it a you problem or is it a changing weather problem? I think it's a changing weather problem, but it's also such a predictable problem that it becomes a me problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like the shift in seasons is always just like the worst. But here's the thing is I never noticed the pattern before. I'm almost 40, and I always <laughs> schedule something in October. <laughs> I mean, I front-loaded my semester. You were like, we could talk about stuff we're doing recently. And I'm like, I kind of did my stuff for this semester. Like, <laughs> I really front-loaded it. Uh, so I have a little bit of downtime. But yeah, typically October is like madness. Just yeah. the busiest time when I was in the heat of it I was stressing but now I'm like oh that was smart to do everything I have to do in September yeah (laughs) that was smart (laughs) yeah my stuff was supposed to cool down by the end of October but it didn't work out that way but now it's gonna cool down that's cool yeah well give me my validation no one has ever experienced a read slump like this you try so hard and you're doing great your reads will get better soon You know, as much as I demanded that validation, it actually does make me feel better. (laughs) So uh, we're about to transition to our fantastic interview with Ben Reutel Ward. And uh, we just wanted to mention that we did this interview. When was it? July? We stockpiled a lot of interviews in the summer. And we're actually in the process of stockpiling a bunch of winter interviews. So uh-huh. get ready for another disclaimer like this in like five months. <laughs> <laughs> but with both of our schedules being so jam-packed, we have found that this works a lot better for us. So uh, unfortunately for you, that means that uh, you're listening to an interview in November uh, that took place in July. So Maybe At, August. I want to say it was August. Maybe August. Maybe. maybe. Before Ben had started his current job at That's right. University of Illinois. So if you're like, it's November, why is he talking about looking forward to starting this position? It's because we're planners. We're planners. We know what happens in October. Okay? Yes. We know what happens in October. And knock on wood, seven years, we always deliver on time so don't be judging us for what we have to do in order to get you your episodes on time be grateful or be anti-grateful it doesn't matter we support both yes you can complain about this if you want and we'll validate you ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. 
Every reed is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing bassoon pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with reed making. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast, Ben Reutel Ward, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at the University of Illinois. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. It's so great to talk with you both. We're so happy to have you here. And I love asking this first question. Um, What brought you to play the bassoon in the first place? Tell us how you got to the bassoon. Sure. So... As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to play the drums. Like ever since I was a little kid, I was always banging on things and I have very supportive parents. And so they really, you know, encouraged me and, you know, signed me up for a marimba band and bought me a djembe and got me drum set lessons and all kinds of stuff. And so when it came time for fifth grade band, it was a clear choice for me. It was like, yeah, I'm going to play percussion. This is kind of my thing, you know, and unfortunately, every other fifth grade boy in my class also had that same idea. And at that point, I kind of had this feeling like, I don't know if this is really cool if everybody's doing it. I don't want to do something that everybody else is doing, which I think is probably something that's common among double read players to have kind of this independent streak. Mm -hmm. And I was really lucky in that my dad, when I was a kid, would take me to all these classical music concerts. And I went to a concert where I heard the bassoon And I was just fascinated by this weirdly shaped, beautiful looking instrument and just totally enchanted with the sound of it. And I kind of made up my mind then and there that I wanted to play bassoon. And, you know, I told my friends that and the response was kind of like, what's that? (laughs) And so for me, that was like, okay, so this is cool. You know, this is my own thing. (laughs) And um, so my parents took me to the music shop and we're in the practice room. I'm trying the instrument and as is common for many kids when they first try my third finger of my left hand, couldn't reach the C tone hole. Mm-hmm. And I was totally overwhelmed. You know, there are all these keys. I so badly wanted to play the bassoon and my finger couldn't reach. So I'm in this practice room crying, you know, just, just desperately wanting to play the bassoon. And uh, the saleswoman at Ted Brown Music in Tacoma, Washington, where I grew up, God bless her heart, comes in. She says, you know, it's okay. You can come back in a year. And you'll try the bassoon again, your finger will grow. And I have a great idea. We have this oboe here. You can play the oboe for a year and then come back. And I'm very proud of this still. It was clear to me from the beginning, this was not an option. I was not interested. (laughs) 
was like, no, it's bassoon or bust. You're no, like, thank that you. thing is trash. I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah, I, I knew I had foresight. <laughs> and um, I, I said, no, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm come back in a year. And the way my mom tells it a year later to the day, I came downstairs. I said, okay, it's time to try the bassoon again. I'm ready. And by that time, we found a local band director who gave me my first bassoon lesson and my fingers could reach. And I had this terrible Linton, you know, school bassoon that barely played, but I didn't care. I was just so happy to finally get to play this instrument. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful to have had the support and, and the opportunity to do it because you know, I've, I've loved it ever since. I can just see you in your in your little bedroom like measure you know how people measure their kids height on the door frame <laughs> you're measuring like a... your, your finger <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly it is time yes <laughs> so talk us through um after you got to start on the bassoon getting serious about it and deciding it was something you wanted to pursue in college and professionally when did you start to fall in love with the bassoon well, like I said, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and my parents kind of called around and asked around who the good bassoon teachers were. And the word on the street was that if you want to study bassoon, you got to study with Francine Peterson. And Francine was my first teacher. I studied with her for seven years in middle school and high school. And, you know, I, I can honestly say I don't think there's any chance I'd be a professional musician today were it not for Francine and everything that she gave me during that time and after that time, too. And, you know, I learned so much from Francine, not only in terms of bassoon playing, especially the fundamentals of bassoon playing, but also just kind of in terms of hard work and being honest with yourself and how to be critical of your playing and, and how to you know keep progressing. And also just about the music industry and what it actually means to be a professional classical musician and how hard that can be mm -hmm. and also how wonderful it can be. And so... I don't really remember having this moment of clarity where it was like, oh, I'm going to go into music. But it just kind of happened that through working with Francine, she was really demanding and was really pushing me. And it, it, it was just something that became such a big part of my life. And I would say one turning point for me was after my sophomore year of high school, I went to Interlock into the summer camp. And that's where I met George Sakikini for the first time and studied with him that summer. And you know, George and I immediately had a, a really good relationship. We really clicked and he showed me things in my playing that had never occurred to me before and was really pushing me to improve those things in my playing and kind of a combination of, of that and, and falling in love with his, his playing and his sound that made me really want to go and study with him. I think that summer was definitely a time where I kind of came back bright eyed and bushy tailed and was like, okay, I, I got to really, you know, work at, at doing this because I really want to you know, take the next step and, and, you know, go to music school and, and pursue this. And so it, it was kind of this gradual evolution with a couple kind of light bulb moments and that definitely was one of them. It is that time where the fire is lit is so magical. I had oh, a yeah. similar summer music yeah. experience where it's just like, Oh wow, I want to do this. Yeah. And like it's so intense and just, it's like, life-changing yeah and especially yeah. because it's like there are all these other people from around the country who also like spend their all their time doing this and a lot of them are way better than me at this and it was like oh That's wow the best you know, part. exactly you know yeah it, it was really kind of opened my perspective in a big way um which was really really helpful and i think you know kind of like my life since then has been a progression of more and more of those like 
oh wow moments mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i'm really grateful for that so take us now through your training and educational journey um, through college and then beyond Sure. So I did my undergrad at Oberlin studying with George Sakikini, and I actually did a double major at Oberlin doing bassoon performance and German studies. And that was a really, really special time for me there. My four years there, it's, you know, just, just a really amazing environment of learning and experimentation and creativity. And I would say the mentors that I had there, but also the friends and the colleagues that I had there were just really transformative for me. I was surrounded by amazing people who are also really, really serious musicians and really great players. And it just really pushed me and inspired me. And at the time that I was at Oberlin, there had been a series of of students from Oberlin who went on to do their masters at Rice. There was kind of this pipeline of students going there. And I decided at some point that that was something I was really interested in. Um, And I went down and took a lesson with Ben Caymans and kind of similarly to what I was saying about George, when I, when I worked with Ben, it was like, Oh, you know, there are all these things in my plane that, that he's showing me that I haven't even thought about in this way yet. And, and it made it clear to me how much I could benefit from working with him. And so I auditioned and I got into rice and spent two years there working with Ben Caymans. And again, similarly, just, you know, being surrounded by so many amazing musicians who were also students there and, and the faculty there. It was a very intense two years for sure, but a, two years in which I grew a lot, I think, as a musician and as a person as well. Um, and then at the end of the master's, there was kind of this crossroads where I was less certain about where to go. I mean, when I was at Oberlin, going to grad school, getting a master's seemed like a really clear, logical next step. And I wasn't as sure when I was finishing my master's and there were a couple of different trajectories that I was exploring, but one thing, or there were a couple of things that came together in the city of Chicago. One thing being that I really wanted to work with David McGill at Northwestern. And I was interested in getting a doctorate with the goal of eventually getting a teaching job. And I also applied for the civic orchestra of Chicago. And for me, Chicago was kind of this really special mythical place because a lot of my best friends at Oberlin had ended up going there and I had played concerts there. And there's just a really amazing community of new music and experimental music that's happening there, which is something that um, I was and still am really uh, invested in. And so kind of these three factors came together and I was lucky enough to get into Civic and to be accepted to Northwestern. Um, to study with with David McGill there. And I spent four wonderful years at, at Northwestern. And that time was really rich for me kind of in terms of my my education, but also in terms of kind of building a professional career, which I had already started to do, but that became much more rich in terms of having more professional success and, and more kind of varied experiences and, and getting to travel and play with different ensembles. And so that, that was a really special time for me. And if I kind of look back on it through no, I don't know, purposeful planning of my own, I really feel that I got to study with each teacher at exactly the time that I needed to. And I'm really grateful that it worked out that way that I feel like there's a lot that I got from each of them. And and that kind of the, the timing just worked out well for me in terms of that progression too. Okay, so can you um, now walk us through embarking on your professional journey and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Um, so like I was saying, when I was in Chicago, this was a time when I you know, first started to get 
a lot more professional experience and playing with orchestras and you know playing with a couple different kinds of ensembles and organizing my own projects. And 2019 was kind of this blossoming year for me of, of getting work and getting called to, to do a lot of projects that I was really excited about. And I kind of had the rug pulled out from under me as you know, all of us did to some extent with the pandemic. And I feel really lucky that during that time I was finishing my dissertation and I was working on a recording project for a solo album. So I had these two projects that um, kind of kept me going, kept me playing the bassoon, kept me involved in those things. But I really was worried about how I would become employed again and how things would come back. And right as I was finishing my doctorate, finishing my uh, dissertation, this job posting come up, came up for the University of Northern Iowa uh, for an assistant professor position. I had been doing a fair amount of teaching before that, um, middle and high school, um, privately and after school programs. And I also was an adjunct at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And so I had a fair amount of teaching experience and was just finishing my doctorate. And so this seemed like something that was at least you know attainable. I was like, I'll throw my hat in the ring here and put together my materials and was lucky enough to get a Zoom interview and then be invited to campus. And I felt really good about the interview. It was actually my first on-campus interview, um, but I, I felt very good about everything. I felt I had prepared really well. I mean, it was like the only thing that I was doing was preparing for this thing, you know, and it, and it really um, seemed like this lifeline to me at that point. And I was lucky enough to be offered the job. And that was my first full-time position as a bassoon professor. And I was at the University of Northern Iowa for two years, had two wonderful years there with really great colleagues, really wonderful students, uh, really enjoyed my time there. And I was teaching bassoon and also some theory and oral training, sight singing, kind of depending on the semester. And um, then this job posting came up for the University of Illinois during my second year there. And that was something I was really excited about because it was a larger program that was more performance focused that offered me the opportunity to work with more graduate students and doctoral students and um, also to be closer to Chicago, which is still where a lot of my work was at that time. You know, a lot of projects that I had, I was able to commute back and forth at least some of the time and keep going. And so this offered me also the opportunity to be closer to those to those projects. And so I again put together my materials and and was lucky enough to advance through the rounds of of that interview process, and I'll be starting next month there, which is something I'm really really excited about. Um, I'm, I'm just so happy, you know, to be part of a school with such amazing faculty and students, and and I, yeah, I can't wait to get started. That is such, I mean, such huge congratulations are in order. It's a fantastic school and school Thank of music, you. and. Uh, I think you're going to have a blast. Thank you. I already am. Yeah, I haven't even started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have a lot of listeners who are on the job seeking path, who are both taking, you know, performance auditions and teaching interviews. And I wonder if you could share your perspective um, since you so recently won this really huge job. Um, on, you know, best practices for preparing for your application uh, for this type of environment? Absolutely. Um, You know, I I think in classical music education, at least in this country, 
there's a huge amount of focus that's placed on preparing for performance auditions for orchestral auditions. You know, I think ever since the beginning of my undergrad, that was at least something that was in the conversation and, you know, people giving master classes on excerpts, you have to do excerpts for uh, summer festivals and, you know, mock auditions and all these things were always a part of my education. And I, I think that the interview and application process for an academic job is much less central to you know, what, what is taught in, in these programs. And so for me, that, that was a real learning process. You know, I've, I've taken a, a fair number of professional auditions in my life. Many of them have gone very poorly. Um, some of them have, have gone well. Um, I was lucky enough to, you know, uh, be successful in, in a few of them. But I felt that I was always within kind of a support network of uh, mentors and, and educators who had been through that process themselves and also peers who were going through the same thing. And I felt when I first started applying for academic positions that it was much more nebulous or much more unclear to me, you know, kind of what the expectations were and, and what the things were um, that I needed to be preparing. And I would say that, you know, I had a lot of help from from mentors and and uh, colleagues and family and, and all of that. But basically, I, I think in terms of preparing before the audition even comes up or the application even comes up, a really important thing is to be keeping track of all these things that you're doing and documenting them, both in terms of documenting them on your CV to show, you know, a, a history of things that you've done, both in performance and teaching and scholarship, and then also to be documenting performances so that you have really excellent audio and video recordings, because a lot of the time, in my experience, at least in the first round of these auditions, which is a written round, um, a lot of these schools will immediately ask for recordings to kind of speed along the process and, and be able to know more about you before they interview you. And so um, I remember the first uh, academic job I ever applied for, which was while I was still studying for my doctorate, it was like this huge deal to get together recordings and, and, and it was like, I didn't sleep for two weeks, you know, because mm -hmm. it was like, I had to listen to every recording I ever had and then listen. And, mm -hmm. and after that experience, I was just like, wow, this is a kind of, kind of maintenance that I need to do to stay prepared for when the next one comes up. And I haven't always been very good about that, but definitely I've, I've gotten better about it. And so in my experience in that first round, Schools will ask for a cover letter, a CV, often some recordings, at least three references, and then sometimes an, an extra thing like a diversity statement or a teaching philosophy or some, some kind of document to learn more about your experience and your approach. Um, and then the Zoom interview is always kind of a really awkward round, I find. Um, usually what has happened or always what has happened when I've been lucky to, enough to have a zoom interview is that the whole committee will be there and they'll each ask a question and they're kind of predetermined questions so it, it kind of doesn't feel like a human interaction because it's already through zoom and then it's just someone like reading something there um but i, I found that you can kind of and i learned this also from jackie's seminar and make quigley that you know there are certain categories that you know are going to be asked about you know for example recruiting for example, your, you know, pedagogy, like how do you approach teaching students of different levels? For example, um, you have a question about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I've always tried to really think about those topics and be ready to 
kind of make a couple of points that are really important to me without making it seem rehearsed, like I'm reading from a script. You know, I still want to make it seem like I'm, uh, or, or I want to actually respond directly to the question that's being asked. And in the, the final round, the on-campus round is super, super intense. And, you know, you're basically spending one or two days just like being, just jumping through all kinds of different hoops, you know, being interviewed by like eight different groups of people, playing a recital, doing a master class, all this kind of stuff. And for me, I've just had to accept that in, in those situations, there's never a perfect preparation because there are just so many different things that you're asked to do during that day. And, you know, I really try to prepare my recital to the best of my ability. That's, you know, that's my priority. I want to show up and I want my recital to be the best one of any of the candidates, you know, to, to have that kind of stick in the minds of the committee and the students and, and anyone who hears it. And that I kind of reflect on the questions that were asked in, in the Zoom interview and try to kind of think about what it is that, that these uh, committee members are, are looking for and asking about and how can I best prepare myself to show how I fit that, you know, without being inauthentic. And, you know, that, that's something that, that is a tough lesson, I think. You know, I, I've been in the finals for a job that I really wanted and that I felt really great about the interview and I, you know, um, thought thought this would be a great fit and then I didn't end up getting it. And that was a hard thing to accept that, you know, maybe something didn't go as well as I thought it did, but more likely just somebody else fit better with what they were looking for than, than you know, what I was presenting. And so what I really try to do is to present as, you know, the best honest version of myself that I can you know, to, to put forward exactly who I am and to demonstrate that in, in the best way possible and to hope that that's a fit. And especially here at the U of I, you know, at every stage, I, I really felt that that way, that there was a connection with, with the committee, a connection with the students and, and that, that it really fit. And, you know, there's only so much that, that you can prepare to have all these interviews and to have all these conversations. And at some point I found that I, I just have to have faith in you know, the work that I've done um, and, and the person that I am and the player that I am and the teacher that I am and, and hope that that's a match. And, and I've been lucky that committees have felt that way two times and, and both times I've really felt that way too. And, and that's a, that's a special thing too. So. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think we've all been there or many of us have been there where you don't get the opportunity that you were really invested in and not taking it personally or maybe recovering quickly from taking it personally <laughs> yes that's that's much more accurate at least in my case in my experience yeah I think that's a lot easier said than done absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. do you so you so you said that the um the recital is an incredibly important component to the audition how do you plan your recital repertoire for a situation like that that's a great question. Um, usually the recitals I've been asked to do have been like 20 or 30 minute recitals. And that's a tough amount of time to show a lot of different things. And I think, you know, the way that I think about it is that this is my chance, first and foremost, to, to show people how I play, you know, to, 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 to just show my playing and, and how I sound and how I approach the instrument. Um, but also it's it's a chance to show 
kind of in action things that I'm talking about in terms of repertoire that I'm interested in, in terms of how I program. And, and so it's, it's challenging to find a balance there of, of different pieces that, that fit into that. And also there's the factor that I've always had to play with piano and I've usually had maybe a 30 minute rehearsal with, with the pianist. And sometimes that's like all the rehearsal time that I, that I have. It's not like I have my own half hour and then also that. And so you know, I try to pick a standard piece that, um, you know, uses the piano that doesn't have a piano part that's too challenging, just so that it's easy to put together so that that's something that I, uh, I don't have to worry about. And it's that's something that's a piece that people will know, I think that that's important, that you're kind of showing something that people feel comfortable, kind of analyzing your, your level of playing with. And, um, like I mentioned earlier, I play a lot of contemporary music, and that's something that's really important for me to show. I, I like to, um, you know, ch- choose a piece that that shows my capabilities and, and my interests in that realm without being something that totally like whacks someone over the head aesthetically. Mm-hmm. And um, then, you know, I, I try and find a third piece that that rounds that out that shows something that the other two haven't, maybe in terms of a piece that's really lyrical. Or, you know, if, if my other two pieces happen to be uh, pieces by white men, I don't want to present a program that's all white men because, you know, that's, that's something that's important to me, talking about diversifying the repertoire, talking about programming. And it's important to me to demonstrate that in everything that I do in the recital is, is part of that. So thinking about represent, representation, thinking about different styles of music, eras of music. And, and I always would like to put forward a program that I don't think anybody else would come up with, you know, that there's at least one piece in there that it's like, that makes me distinctive, whether that's because of, it has a whole bunch of crazy multiphonics in it or something like that. Or a couple of times I've actually played a piece of my own that, that I composed, um, which shows then another aspect of, of my musicianship. And so, you know, I, I try and try and balance kind of checking all these different boxes and it's never, Perfect. But, you know, those are all things that I'm, I'm weighing. Mm-hmm. I'd love to delve deeper into your interest in contemporary music. Um, for our listeners who maybe are intimidated, either aesthetically or technically, you know, you are someone who's done a lot of premieres, recording projects, created resources. Um, can we hear a bit about your experience what you think that style has added to you musically and also if you have any like hidden gems that you want to shout out uh for people to check out we'd love we're always interested in that too absolutely um and it's okay if they're by ben roidal ward yeah (laughs) self-promotion is the name of the game on double i won't be that shameless then (laughs) Uh, um, no yeah so so Playing contemporary music is is a, a major part of my career and a major part of kind of how I think of myself as a musician. And I think that means a lot of different things. A big part of that for me is working with composers. And, you know, one of, one of my life goals is is to participate or, or kind of um, be a part of a catalyst for creating a whole new repertoire for our instrument. Because I think if you compare the repertoire for the bassoon to the clarinet or the flute or the piano or the violin or the voice or, you know, any, it, it, it pales in comparison. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that 
we as bassoonists and I, I think also as oboists have to be champions of our instrument. We we have to you know find composers who we who we believe in, whose music we love, and we have to inspire them and pay them uh, to write music for our instrument. And so that's something that's really important for me. Um, also, uh, improvisation in terms of like a, more of a free improvisation rather than uh, kind of jazz improv improvisation playing over changes. That's a big part of my artistic identity as well, I would say. And this all kind of started for me at Oberlin, where I, without realizing it, put myself in this environment where there was a huge amount of really interesting uh, creative experimentation and collaboration going on. And I just was having my mind blown constantly by my friends showing me music or my friends writing music or my friends writing me music. And I I really kind of was, was thrown into this world that was totally unexpected for me. And I, I became completely uh, entranced in it and, and still am. And for people who are you know, hesitant about new music, I, I, I would just say that new music is this vast universe of different styles and aesthetics and ideas and things. And I think there's something for everyone in there. I mean, there, there are people who are writing very tonal, very lyrical music that still, you know, is, is inventive and creative and really important. Um, and there are people who are writing extremely noisy, gnarly music that I also think is, is really interesting and important. And, you know, I, I kind of play all over the spectrum with these things. I, I do kind of specialize just from my interest and my research in multiphonics and maybe the, the noisier end of the spectrum. But um, I, I really am inspired to see how, especially with, with young musicians and students that I work with, how many people are just aware of composers who are writing new music today and who are seeking that out, both to play it and to work with composers and listening. And I think that's that's really important as a part of perpetuating our art form and reaching new audiences and continuing to you know, do this thing that we do, whatever it is that we're doing as, as best as we can. And so that that's that's really exciting for me. And um, I guess if, if I were to give give a shameless plug about a couple of different pieces that I think are really interesting. I, I released a solo album called Axis Mundi last year, which has six pieces written within the last 10 years on it. Four of them are pieces that were written for me and two of them are, are pieces that weren't written for me, but are uh, written by composers who, uh, you know, I really admire. And, and the title of the album comes from Lisa Lim's piece, Axis Mundi, which if someone put a gun to my head and said, what's your favorite solo bassoon piece? That's probably what I'd say, because it, it's, it's a piece that I've been playing for a long time. And that has taught me so much about my own instrument and about myself as a player. And that has so many things in there that are just kind of sonically, aesthetically surprising and intriguing. And it's, it's a piece that continues to make me curious when like, you know, every time I relearn it for, I'm relearning it right now for a performance next week. It's like, every time I come back to it, I find something new. And so that that's one that, that I hope will become, you know, even, even more prominent in, in the bassoon community and become a piece that, that people are really aware of and play more and more because I think it's just an amazing piece. When someone would say, look at your, 
educational, I really hate the word pedigree, but that's what's coming to mind right now. Um, There might be certain assumptions about your path or about the goals of someone who had your particular path. And I wonder if you ever felt, um, I don't want to say felt pressured or if it required any effort to liberate yourself from expectations to pursue paths and um, areas that were of authentic interest to you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 think, that's a, I think that's a really fair question. And, and the answer is yes, that I, I do feel like there are many times where I kind of was was swimming against the stream of, of in terms of the dominant culture at these institutions that I was at, where I was studying, and I mean Oberlin is a hotbed of experimentalism in a lot of ways, but it, it is also a, a very traditional conservatory in other ways, you know, mm-hmm. and and I think especially in, in the woodwind department, you know, that there definitely is still this this um, focus and in this investment on a certain tradition of American wind playing. Um, and I think that's true in different ways of Rice and Northwestern as well. Um, as a preface to my answer, I will say that despite playing a lot of contemporary music and being really invested in that, that's not the only thing that I do. Mm-hmm. And I am also really invested in sort of the, the traditional canon of the orchestral repertoire and, and of chamber music. And, you know, I, I play in the Chicago Sinfonietta, I play in the Illinois Symphony. It's a big part of what I do professionally as well, um, you know, playing orchestral music and and also, you know, older solo pieces and chamber pieces. Um, I will say it, it at every stage, I never felt that there was someone who was actively trying to suppress my desire to play new music. I did encounter a lot of kind of confusion or, mm-hmm. um, or, or kind of gentle resistance or, uh, you know, kind of reminders of like, Hey, don't forget to, you know, play something that sounds pretty, you know, and that, I'm, I'm saying that kind of flippantly, but, um, but there were, you know, certainly times in my education where there, there was kind of a disconnect between what the program I was studying and was designed to do and a lot of the creative projects that I was pursuing. Um, and for me, it was interesting to just kind of discover through that how important to me these projects were and how invested I actually was in them. Um, I mean, when I went to Rice, I really... Rice has a, a, a reputation for being a very orchestrally focused school, and it's it's excellent at training people to go on to have orchestral careers. And that was kind of my my vision in going there was that I would that I would um, you know follow that kind of a career, and that maybe I would do some new music on the side, but that you know I really had to kind of focus on this thing, which, which I did definitely to a certain degree during those two years, but also like kind of by accident. I found myself in my second year of Rice, I was one of two people who was you know, running the student-led contemporary music ensemble. And usually at least one or two nights a week, I was playing somewhere in Houston in a, in a free improvised gig. You know, there's this amazing community of, of free improvisers there. And it wasn't like I like consciously made this choice of like, oh, I'm going to pursue these things. But it just was something that was so important to me and so much a part of how who I am as a musician in a way that I didn't fully understand when I started at Rice. 
And in a way, I'm, I'm really grateful for that because it, it showed me that this was something that was really important for me to pursue seriously, no matter what. And I do believe that it's, it's possible to do multiple things really seriously at the same time. And it's kind of a juggling act. And sometimes I manage that better than, than other times. But I guess that that's what I'm trying to do. And by the time I went to my doctorate, you know, I, I had a clear idea that this was some some thing in the realm of contemporary music was going to be the topic of my dissertation. And that this was something that, you know, not only was, was something that I do a lot, but also is something that I have, I feel I have a lot to contribute to as, as a player, as a scholar, as uh, an educator and, and as an advocate. And so um, definitely there has been some, some resistance, but I'm, I don't think it ever came from a, a, a bad place or trying, trying to cut it down. And, and, I'm grateful to be a part of, you know, those, those traditions of, of playing and, the, and those, you know, those pedagogical legacies. And, and because I do think they inform my playing of contemporary music as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a convoluted answer, I guess. No, it's great. And it leads perfectly actually to my second follow-up and also relates to what Gali and you were talking about with uh, emphasizing fit and uh, because I remember at my higher ed presentation at Mid Quigley, Illinois was open at the time. And I mm-hmm. remember saying the person who gets that job will have a very solid foundation, but they will also be creative and open minded. And I, because of what I knew about the Illinois School of Music, I kind of knew and everything you're talking about uh, just underscores the importance of fit. Uh, which can be so hard while we're waiting to find our right fit. Um, but yes, I, I agree. I think that um, being multifaceted is so important. And the question that I had, you know, it wasn't so much really to make a point, except that um, sometimes specializing can be seen as a bad thing. But I think if we view it as being comprehensive or diversifying or being multifaceted, it can really only be an asset. I I, I just wanted to make the point there that it, that this is a I, it made me think of this thing that you know this idea of specializing I think goes on in a lot of different directions too, and I, and I think kind of the default way that we think about it is that you know a, a lot of people go in with this idea of they're specializing in orchestral music, and we kind of allow that to just be a default. Mm-hmm. that that's not like specializing that's just something that you do normally even yep. though like the, the rates of success there are are, are really really slim mm-hmm. you know and and you know i've definitely encountered times where there were questions from people who i play new music with like why are you taking all these auditions you know why are you mm-hmm. playing in this or why do you play all this tchaikovsky it's like well because i love it yeah. you know and and then you know when i was going to my doctorate that's also a different kind of specialization that it's like oh you get pinholed as you know someone who's going to get a dma because they weren't good enough to get a job kind of thing mm-hmm. you know which which is definitely kind of um uh, an idea that's that's out there and you know i i will say that one thing i i would want to add to my previous answer is that at every phase i've been so grateful to have such supportive friends and colleagues doing these different things with me that I never felt alone in doing any of them. You know, that's, some of my best friends are orchestral musicians. Many of my best friends are composers or or, uh, or new music specialists, you know, and, and uh, increasingly I have more and more close friends who are full-time faculty members. And so it's, you know, I've, I've been grateful to have people with me in every facet of that journey to kind of 
show me how to navigate that. Yeah. And the, the perceptions aside, the truth is that it's extremely hard to be successful at any of them, <laughs> you know, yes. And it yes. so much time and dedication, um, which kind of brings me to, you know, you have a, a very uh, esteemed orchestral resume and level of experience. You have this fabulous new job. You're very active in new music. How do you balance uh, your time, your practice time, but also your just actual day to day to be, it does really seem to me to be a balance and it's certainly okay to not be balanced and to just throw yourself into your interest. But you do seem to be someone who really does want to operate at a very high level in multiple worlds. How do you have 34 hours in your day, Ben? I wish every night I say a little prayer, just 10 more hours a day is all I need, please. Um, but no, th thank you for that, that question and, and for, for, for saying that, um, I was a little, you know, I was kind of worried about this question in, in a way, because I think that, you know, balance is a really challenging thing in general and, and is something that's really challenging for me. And I will, I just want to say that I, I don't often feel balanced. I don't often feel like I have a balance in my life. And part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, from starting school until now, and also continuing at least for the next couple of years, I've always been in a situation where I'm having to kind of look for the next thing to audition for or to you know perform in or, or to check this box or that box you know in order to make myself employable in a lot of different ways and that's not to say that I'm doing all these things cynically you know I that maybe probably 90 percent of the things that I do I do because I really love them and I think that they're important and you know there's 10 percent of things that you do because it's like well I need to demonstrate that this is something that's in my repertoire mm -hmm. um and it's really a, a challenge for me. There, there are two things that I would say that I've learned, especially in the last two years, which were really, really challenging for me in terms of time management and in terms of balance with having a full-time academic job, commuting frequently to Chicago to play, which is not in, I mean, it's not like an easy commute. It's like a four and a half hour commute mm -hmm. and traveling to do projects and, and trying to juggle all of that. In terms of my bassoon playing, I've really gotten something reinforced that I already knew to a certain extent, which is that I've got to really be strict with myself about my fundamentals in terms of warming up, practicing, making reads, all these, all these things that that if I have an hour to practice in a day, that's what I have to do. And that's a hard thing for me to remember because I feel that a lot of the time when there's so much music to learn and so many different things coming up, I lose sight of that. And then my, my playing goes way out of balance in, in the sense that it's just like that the foundation of it isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And and I really need to be proactive about that. And I've also learned, which is something that I got much better about in the last year, is that I have to find ways to get myself away from all these things that I'm doing, because there's always something that I feel like I'm behind on or am actually behind on or something else that I, I need to do. And so one thing that, that was really helpful for me ever since I've been a kid, I've played soccer and I love soccer. I love watching soccer. And I joined an adult pickup league last year that played once a week. And it's like for those 90 minutes, 
It's like, I'm not thinking about reads. I'm not thinking about grant applications. I'm not thinking about anything except like chasing the ball, you know, and, and that's such a healthy thing for me to have my mind taken off of it. In addition to, you know, the physical exercise, which is, which is always a good thing. And I've also made a deal with myself that at least once a year, I need to go out into the wilderness and go backpacking for at least two nights with no phone and just kind of decompress. And I found that, you know, if, like if you're walking all day outside, your mind just kind of starts to gradually unwind. And I finally am able to like process things and understand things better. And I try to do that as much as possible. But it's like, I have to do it at least once a year and really commit to it because otherwise I, I kind of start to start to lose it. And, and, for me, it's a really hard thing to prioritize those things as much as I prioritize everything else. And, you know, I, I think that's a common conversation in, in self-care about, you know, how do you change taking care of yourself in terms of nutrition and exercise and all of that from being the last thing on your list to being up there along with all of your other priorities. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that I'm working on constantly. And, and it's constantly, you know, like, Maybe balance is a good analogy because it's like, it's not like balance. It, it's like you're, you're always kind of teetering and, and adjusting back and forth. And, and that's definitely how I feel. And sometimes it swings a little further in either direction than I want it to, but it, it's definitely something that I'm working on and, and also recognizing that it's different for everyone and that everyone has different uh, thresholds in terms of what they need for sleep and how many things they can work on at the same time. And, and so I've been really trying to kind of learn about myself and investigate myself um, to to find as much of a of an even balance as possible, and that's that will probably be a work in progress for the rest of my life. So, speaking of balancing, uh, can you tell us more about your reads? <laughs> I was like, where are we going with this balancing? Now, that is a segue. <laughs> that is a segue. Wow. I did not see it coming. <laughs> I really did not see it coming. That was I'll good. I'll be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of make reads in a combination of a Sakikini, Kamen's, Hertzberg style. I mean, those are um, you know the two teachers that I studied with who who really emphasized read making very heavily as a part of uh, the conversation. Um, I like to start from tube cane. Um, I don't always have time to do that. A lot of the time I'll buy gouged cane, but um, you know, in, in an ideal scenario, I, I buy tubes and gouge them myself. Um, I have this wonderful Greg James gouger, which I just got recently that I really like. And I have two shapes that I use right now. And that's basically just because I can't figure out if actually when one read is good, it's because of the shape or it's because of the cane or something else. And so I'm, I'm like too obsessive about these two to let either of them go. Um, and the, the first is the Sakikini Van Hosen shape from Fox, uh, which I really like. And then I have a Potsik uh, copy of the Hertzberg shape. And those two shapes are actually very similar, which is another reason why I think it's very easy to uh, change back and forth between the two of them. They have similar characteristics with just, you know, a couple slight differences, which of course have, you know, implications down the line. Um, I, in my read making, you know, this is, this is 
definitely a Hertzberg line, but I'm, I'm looking for response and intonation as two objective factors that I can test for. And I'm, I'm looking to make a balanced read um, that, that has tapers that basically go from the back to the front and from the center to the side, kind of as a, as a global principle. And you know, the, the uh, relationship of those tapers you know, it's changing across the blade of the reed. It's not just a straight line, but that's kind of globally how I think about it. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to say that because I'm, I'm testing primarily for response and intonation, it doesn't mean that I don't care about sound. I care deeply about sound, and I think everyone cares about their sound. Um, but to me, that's a hard thing to put into objective terms. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to actually judge and to respond to. And I find that if I go down a rabbit hole of looking for a certain sound, you know, sometimes that has more to do with the room that I'm sitting in than it has to do with, with the read. And um, what I find is that if it's a good piece of cane and it responds and it plays in tune, it, it will sound within kind of the bubble of, of, of what I imagine, you know, a, a beautiful sound to be. And the other thing is that, you know, over, over the, a reed's lifespan that that will also change and it will kind of, you know, hopefully refine and become more even. But I, I think that early in the process, I really have to be very demanding about those objective criteria in order to have a chance of having a read that does the things that I need it to down the line. You know, I don't care how beautiful I sound. If it, if the note doesn't come out, it's kind of a moot point. Mm -hmm. um, and try to make a lot of reads in an ideal scenario. I'm clipping five or six reads a week. And um, I like one thing I really like to do is the last thing before I go to bed, I clip a read and I do a first day scrape. And then first thing the next morning, I play on it, I warm up on it. And I find that that's a really productive thing in terms of breaking the read in and learning a lot about the read through my warm up. And it, it also you know, is, is a good way to kind of get me warmed up in the morning. And then I, I try and kind of gradually break reads in once I feel that they're ready for, you know, a, a practice session where I'm being more picky about certain things. And, and I'm always kind of going back and forth and adjusting in that process, which of course can sometimes be a trap if you like never end up practicing and you're always going back and forth to the read, which I think is why I want to make sure that the read is at a certain level before I take it to a serious practice session, because it's like, I want to sit down and practice and mm -hmm. I don't want to have to, you know, like maybe in an hour I have to scrape it twice, but I don't want to be constantly going back and forth. And then a, a, an important part of the of the read making process for me, which maybe sometimes people don't talk about as much, is that you know then listening to a read in a rehearsal in an ensemble in a larger space and adjusting there, I find that if I finish a read in my studio, most of the time there are certain things that are lacking about it or certain things that are surprising to me when I move into a bigger space. And that was one of the hardest things about the pandemic. You know, mm -hmm. it's like. That's the only place I was making reads. And okay. so that, that's something that I would try to be really purposeful about too, is testing them in a larger space, playing in an ensemble and, and learning about their tendencies that way. Tell us about a favorite memory you have of a past performance. Sure. Um, one great memory that I have was in 2021, August of 2021, I got to go play for a week with the Arctic Philharmonic in Buda, Norway, which is way up north in Norway near the Arctic Circle. And I got to play there as a trial week for a um, position as co-principal bassoon there. And this had been kind of this long, like year and a half saga of sending 
virtual auditions and not being allowed into the country and asking if I could send a video for the next round and so on and so forth. And finally, the stars aligned and I was able to travel to Norway. And when you're that far north in August, they're like, there's like one hour when the sun goes down and it's this total fairy tale place. And it was just kind of unbelievable to me that after like sitting in my room, dreaming of going to this place for all this time, I was able to go. And we were playing Beethoven nine, which was my first time playing the whole Beethoven nine, which is a very special experience. Um, and it was just a, a great concert. It was sold out. People loved it. There was a huge standing ovation of people. And it, and it was like, and then it was done at like nine. And then there were like five more hours of daylight. And it was just kind of this totally surreal utopian experience. And it was, it was a really special week for me. Um, and I ended up being offered the job and having to turn it down, which was really a difficult, heartbreaking thing. But I'm grateful that I have at least that, that memory of it, which is something that I really treasure. That is really incredible and beautiful. And now I'm wondering if you have any perhaps embarrassing performance memories that you would be willing to share. Um, many. <laughs> um, one, one, one good one that I thought about recently was, um, I think this was maybe 2018 or 2019. I was invited to go sub with the Hawaii Symphony. Uh, which was a wonderful weekend. We were playing Symphony Fantastique. And this was one of those situations where it was like after the last concert, I had to immediately get into a lift and go to the airport and fly back to Chicago. So it was kind of a stressful day. And I was in this practice room warming up and had all my luggage with me and everything. And I kind of lost track of time. I was running a little behind and I'm rushing to pack up my bassoon and not really paying attention. And my wing joint swab got stuck in my wing joint, no. which as soon as snow is an absolute nightmare and absolutely horrible. And so I, I went over to the hall. I was like maybe 25, 30 minutes early. And I immediately went to Tommy Morrison, who was, who was playing principal and let him know what was going on. Went to the personnel manager and I said, listen, this is what's going on. I don't really know what to do. And you were, people start like, people start bringing you coat hangers and pliers and all kinds of, you know, everyone's just trying to be helpful. It's like, I'm not sticking these things in my bassoon. I don't want to scratch the bore with right. PSA. Don't put it, you know, don't do that. And there was um, a bass player in the orchestra who was, who saved me, who, I think his name was Randy. I can't, I can't remember. I'll have to go back and check, but he came up and he said, Hey, listen, I'm involved with the Honolulu youth symphony. We have these couple of student bassoons. If the personnel manager says it's okay, I'll drive over there. I'll get them. And then at intermission, you can try them and you can play on one of those bassoons. And so in the first half I was playing second bassoon. So the, the third bassoonist from the Berlioz allowed me to generously allowed me to play her bassoon. You know, I took my vocal and my read and everything. It was a little squirrely, but it, it was fine. You know, everything went fine. And I run backstage and there, you know, God bless them. There are these four bassoons there and I take them out and I try them. And I think it was, a, you know, one of the Fox plastic bassoons, which are good horns yeah. um, that, that I picked. And, you know, it had a couple pads that maybe needed to be replaced, but I was like, you know what, this is, this is the best I got. Again, took my vocal, took my read, went out. And I was like, you know what? It's like, I just got to do it. I, I have to do it. And, you know, it, Symphony Fantastique, of course, has like these three bassoon excerpts in there. And those ones are, are not so touchy because it's like everybody's playing them and it's kind of loud and all that. Like, not that it, I, I wasn't worried about 
messing them up. But you know, there are a couple touchy places there in the second or third movement with these kind of lower corrals. And that's what I was really worried about. But I just played a little louder than I would have otherwise. And I just kind of uh, went for it and it went fine. And um, it, it was really a nerve wracking experience. And I really hope that well, I, I know that will never happen to me again because I've now taken certain precautions, but uh, that, that was a tough one for sure. Oh, man, that sucks. It was bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is our last question. I can't believe it. What was What is your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? That's a good question. Um, I would say two things. The first is something that Ben Kamen's always used to say, which is it's a simple mantra that I think is has a lot of far reaching implications. And that is that there's no way around the work. And that no matter what you're doing musically, no matter what kind of style of music you're playing, whether you're teaching or you're performing, there's there's no way around kind of the daily grind of sitting down and playing your instrument and making the reads and working on your fundamentals and playing your scales and your etudes and all of that, that's, that's central and essential to what we do. And there are days where I wake up and it's like, I can't wait to try this read and sit down and play this. And I'm, you know, I'm on G major this week and I love G major, you know, like, and then there are days where it's like the last thing I possibly want to do right now is to put one of these horrible reads on my instrument and try to play them. <laughs> and, and, no, in either way, I, I, my commitment to it has to be the same. And I, I think that that's something that can be really challenging at times and, and something that I really you know, encourage in, in my students to build a habit of that and build a commitment to that, because I think that's what everything else that we do is, is built on. Um, and the other thing that I would say, which kind of goes into a different direction, is I, I would really encourage people to go hear as many live concerts as you possibly can. And I mean, you know, find the nearest great orchestra and go listen to them. Go listen to them 10 times a year. If you can't make it 10 times, go listen twice a year, you know, even if even if that's not what you want to do, you know, but also go listen to 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 great jazz musicians, you know, go find the nearest basement that has a weird noise set going on and listen to that. And I, I think that as much as I love recordings and studying recordings, there's nothing that replaces being there and, and witnessing a performance live and hearing it in the space and also kind of witnessing everything that goes on around the performance. And the other thing I would say is talk to people when you're there. You know, if, if mm -hmm. someone played a great concert, go up and talk to them afterwards and say, hey, that was great. Even if you don't know them, even if they play a totally different instrument. And, and I think that's something that often feels awkward to do, but I think it's so important that if we're gonna be performers, we're engaging with that as audience members as well. And I, I always learn something when I go to a concert. And I can't tell you how many times I've made connections, not just for like getting gigs with people that I've met at concerts or that I've heard at play, play at concerts, but people who have, have, have taught me something or people who have gone on to, you know, become close friends or have showed me other music that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. And so I, I would really encourage everybody to, to do that as much as you possibly can. Now that, you know, now that we can do it again, what a blessing. Mm-hmm. Ben, this has been such an exciting, fun, and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you, Galid, and thank you, Jackie. It was a huge pleasure for me, and I'm so grateful to you guys for inviting me on. So, Galid and I forgot to record an outro. <laughs> Maybe for the first time ever. Uh, so, you just have Jackie here, and I am going to remind you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps us reach more people. Follow us on social media. We always love hearing from you. And on our next episode, we welcome Rob Sheena, English horn in the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Boston Pops Orchestra. It was a great interview and we can't wait to share it with you. It's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.